From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We've been coming to you for over nine years now. Same crew, same host, faculty colleagues all here at the Wharton School. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, and this is Cade Masty. We are recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we typically do these days. We are recording on Zoom, as we typically do these days. And the show will go up Wednesday morning. It goes up on SiriusXM. It's replayed a few times over the course of the week. We get the podcast up. Also, Wednesday, we've got a little highlight show now, a little 20-minute version, a little excerpt from the show that we're distributing these days. All of that material be up and around on Wednesday. Gentlemen, it remains one of the best weeks of the year. We talked about it last week with NBA playoffs going on, with the NHL playoffs going on. Last week, that was complimented by the NFL draft. This week, it's complimented by the Kentucky Derby. In fact, we're going to talk Derby. We're going to talk horse racing in Q2. Our guest in Q2 is Jeff Cedar. Those longtime listeners will recognize Jeff's voice. He's been a, he's been a guest here almost every spring that we've done this. And then we have Sam Monson in Q3. Sam is an analyst at PFF. We're going to talk about the NFL draft in Q3. I suspect Q3 will not be enough to exhaust our NFL draft thoughts, and it will spill into Q4. But we'll do our normal show, guests in Q2 and Q3, open lines in Qs 1 and 4. And I think I know where we're going, but I'm always curious. What caught your eye? What caught your eye in the world of sports, guys? Well, I mean, we I, I think we do have to talk about some of the upsets that happened in the hockey playoffs as uh as, as almost free of foretold <laughs> by us that we're pretty uh pretty at least oh, uh, no. 54, you know, 58% Shane on those two teams, the Avalanche and the yeah. Bruins. No, as I mean you, it is as you said for weeks, those two were a guaranteed lock. Yeah, no, that's right. It is an indictment, I think, of really kind of short odds on any one team that, you know, yeah, five, six, almost 60% of 538's kind of Stanley Cup winning probable teams got bounced in the first, first round. round. Incredible. And they were the only, and interestingly enough, they were the only real, two real upsets in the first round. The rest of the first round kind of went chalk outside of them. Basically, so you know that you know they're the only reason we have any wild card team. Those two rounds or two matchups is the only reason we have any wild card teams still in it uh, now. But let's just let's just emphasize that Shane just said sixty percent of the probability, approximately from five thirty eight. If you remember, we looked at those numbers and yeah. it was so heavily weighted at the top. There were two. One team really had most of this mass, and then the, there was another big one, the Avs, and then everybody else. We're talking fourteen other teams were distributed to make up this other 40%. And those top two teams are both out. Both in game seven, it was so much fun. Eric. Yeah, just to build on that, just but let's also remember, we're 58 seconds away from a different narrative, yeah. which is the Bruins yeah. win three to two in game seven and the better team won. And so we're 50 seconds away from that. And then I just have a, I don't want to call it a me- momentum. What's more of a psychology question for Cade. So the avalanche, have now lost six consecutive game sevens. Is that worth anything? Like, do you, if you're, I mean, obviously every time, let's say it's the next game seven and every reporter in the planet's going to say, you guys know you've lost six consecutive game sevens. So let's just apply, let's all agree for a second. It could have some effect. Is it a 1% effect or is it a 5% effect? Because 1% would say, 
All right, instead of 55, 50-50, I'm going to go 51-49, which, yeah, that's bupkis. But if it's a 5% effect, which is 55-45, then all of a sudden we're like, wow, that's huge. And you know which one I'm going to go for? I'm going for it matters. <laughs> I'm saying it's going to be brought up, and psychologically it's a factor. I'm bringing it up. I, I mean, I just think that, uh, that this comes around rarely. And I, I mean, I'd need to know and actually see those six times and see if that goes back to like the early 90s or something like that. I just, the amount that it has relevant, I mean, if as an individual player, I experience some of those game seven losses, yeah, I'm sure that has an effect. But I mean, what like, you know, somebody that happened to wear the same jersey as me did like 20 years ago. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. So, I mean. I said yeah. psychological. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say uh, I'm more in agreement with Shane on this. I don't think we can read that much into these streaks, particularly when there's so many possibilities. Unless, unless, they all involve, unless it's something that, all you know, the current team is sort of like, current team, you know, yes, actively maintaining or something like that. Yeah. Right. But I wanted to ask you uh, specifically, I mean, this is an incredible upset, despite the fact that we were talking for last you know two weeks always about how the no one team can dominate despite the fact that they're good but there's lots of rounds to the playoffs so even you know it's not that our models didn't think the bruins were great it just we were saying they're not that great to have that high a probability of making yeah. the end none of us predicted they wouldn't get out of the first round so what right. i'm actually thinking is my question to you all is this one i mean this is astounding i mean because the bruins are like the best team one of the how far i mean i'll ask you shane in particular yeah among the best teams ever, where would this rank? Are they one, two, three? And could you imagine a comparable thing happening in a different sport? And I think the answer would be no, even for the most. Well, random. no, I, I mean, we, we, uh, it's kind of funny. I mean, I th- whoever posted that, I mean, basically the same thing has happened in every major sport. Every sport. Every sport, the, the team with the best regular season record of all time has not won the championship. Mariners in baseball, Patriots in football. Red, uh, you know, the, now the, the, uh, who, who is it? Uh, the, the Warriors, Warriors in basketball. So, I mean, I mean, I mean, or another way I say it is like, I think this is just another thing where even as people who kind of know probabilities as our game, like, you know, I think the, the lesson of this is never put any playoff hockey series at more than like maybe 60 40. And if you see the 40, don't get cr- go crazy about it. Let me ask you, I want to ask a follow-up to that, which is like, for example, when the Mariners lost, they, they lost to a really good team, the Yankees, who sure. weren't as good, but they were still pretty close, and you can easily expect that to go the other way around. In this series, where what was the, like, ELO rankings, or what was the probability? Oh, um, the, impli- the probability at the start of this series was something like 85. Good. Yeah, but I, mean, yeah. I, okay. I think that's an indictment of the ELO system for creating mm-hmm. probabilities for hockey. in hockey. I think in probability, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, if you look at Mike Blake McCurdy's, you know, whatever model he's using, the the probabilities are a little bit more, you know, reasonable, I, I think more well calibrated. I think it's really, but I mean, they were very different in ELO rating and had a very crazy implied probability, but I, I don't, I don't think that's real. I, again, I would, I would upper cap any difference in hockey at like 60, 40 in a series. Playoff so series. let me ask you guys a related question. It blends Adi's question, your uh, response, Shane. Um, how much do we update the Panthers? Like, in other words, they just beat the great team in hockey. And I think we both agree, Shane, you would agree, that yeah. in the next, they, they probably um, are one of the five greatest regular season teams of all time. Not just the points, but everything. Are the Bruins? Yeah, I, I would yeah. put them at two. I would put okay. them right behind the, the Canadians uh, okay. in the 70s. That so actually did how, much do we, how much probability do we now distribute to the Panthers, recognizing they just beat that team? Uh, well, I mean, it, 
I, I guess my argument would be not much more because, you know, that, you know, even, I, I guess I'm sort of saying like, even if you have less than like a 60 40 team in the first round and then all like, that's a well calibrated probability, them winning gives you a, you know, I wouldn't necessarily be based on the outcome of one playoff series. I wouldn't necessarily update my odds, given that I think it's so random anyway. Oh, I want to ask you, uh, but, but I, I mean, you know, I, it's, it's sort of I, I think you would update a little bit, but you would update more Toronto's odds facing them, because I think, you know, obviously Toronto facing them versus facing a Boston team that got through. That's a pretty big I, I think that would really shift the Toronto odds. And I felt I felt so bad pulling as hard as I was against the Bruins just for the upsetness of it. But then when you see how sad they were, I'm like, oh, I'm a bad person. But I, I was one of the legitimate reasons I was pulling for it was I would so much rather the Leafs play the Panthers than the Bruins. So that mm-hmm. tells you that I haven't shifted my probabilities that much. Yeah. But here, let me let me, Eric, Eric. Before we leave hockey, I'm gonna I, come, ask you guys, I put in a quiz no, no. for you guys. We got more hockey to talk about. We okay, got more hockey. Shane, but, but, all right, but Shane may know the answer to this. There are apparently there are seven Canadian hockey teams. You would know that. Um, when's the last Canadian NHL champion? Do any of you guys know? Oh, I mean, I'm going to hold off because I obviously do know. Okay. So I'm sorry. Me. I didn't mean to sound like very. Okay. Dumb. I, I, I have personal reasons for knowing. Okay. I, I would think did, 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 did Vancouver get it done when Brian Burke was their general manager? No. no. Um, did Edmonton get it done more recently? Nope. No. Okay. Uh, how about if I told you it was 1993? Yeah, it was 30 years ago this year. That's the last Canadian champion. Montreal Canadiens. And the reason I know this is they you won it in 1993, that. the right before I moved there for college. I showed oh, I showed wow. up and they were still sweeping up. Okay. Okay. So I what's the question explain that to Shane? Just by randomness, they would have a title or two in the last. 30 years. What, what is there any statistical explanation or other explanation that we can give for why that would be true? There's one structural, there's one structural and one more um, spiritual and uh, reason. So structurally for a while there, at least, especially in the mid to like before kind of, we got, you know, profit sharing got a little bit better and like kind of revenue sharing got better and they had a salary cap and all that stuff. The, the Canadian teams, I think were kind of at a kind of a structural disadvantage just with the difference in, in, in kind of the taxation rate. It was harder to attract or keep top talent for the Canadian teams to collect the top talent in this phase of like, you know, like, I guess, mid nineties to maybe like early two thousands or something like that. So so for some part of that in time, there's been some structural disadvantage, but I've also, I've told you guys about the curse of Marty McSorley before, right? (laughs) No, in that 1993 Montreal final, the 1993 final was between the Montreal Canadians and the Los Angeles Kings under Wayne Gretzky in his, you know, second sort of with the second team took the Los Angeles Kings to the final. In game two of that final, the LA Kings were about to win, and the Montreal Canadiens did the very odd thing of actually checking, getting calling the refs overs, and having Marty McSorley's hockey stick checked to see if it had an illegal, if the curvature in it was was illegal or too much. There are rules about these things. And it was, and they got a penalty. Montreal Canadiens scored, came back, and swept the rest of the series. <laughs> and so since that time... And there's all kinds of snackets about how did they know, blah, blah, blah. Since that time, it's been called the curse of Marty McSorley. Wow. <laughs> can there can you I ask just a bit, can I ask a baseline question before we ponder this any more, yeah. more deeply? 
What fraction of the teams are Canadian? For most and of that time, it was seven. No, seven. well, but for for most, the Jets are very. For most of that time, it yeah. actually I think was only six out of uh, six so, out of thirty to so thirty-one. percent. So one fifth. Twenty percent. So my follow-up question would be: um, Have Canadian players? Um, did they more, more historically? Did they concentrate more in Canada than they yeah. do now? Or I mean, just... earlier, yes, yeah. I mean, before yes, okay. kind of modern times. I mean, yes, the Montreal Canadiens were a dominant team because Quebec. It's a, in the same way, Montreal Canadiens used to be a dominant team in the same way that Alabama will always be a dominant football team because they regionally draw from the top, some of the top talent pool. And so that in terms that of both of passion and just everything. But that, but that probably has weakened a lot in the last 25, yeah, 30 years. Yeah. Okay, so there we go. But just, just to make sure we're doing the same, I think what you're trying to do for our listeners is say the binomial calculation is there's N is 30, he is 0.2. Let's assume it's uniform. The expected number is six, right? The yep. standard deviation is roughly the square root of that, right? And so, yep. uh, or roughly, so let's say standard deviation is two. So with... And, and you know, a mean of six, standard deviation of two, two and a half, it's 0.8. It's really a square root of 4.8, but whatever it is, it's roughly there. So it's two, two and a half. We're at least two plus standard deviations away. It's yeah. not, it's th- those events. Yeah, have- or, or, I mean, or do the calculations other way with extra information. I think almost every single Canadian team, with the exception of the Wimbledon Cake Jets that are new, have been to the finals in that 30 year period and lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That gets you about the same probability. <laughs> one half to the fifth, one half to the sixth. But well, so a little, using, a little bigger. using Micah McCurdy's current as of today probabilities, which we like, and we like his data viz. So strong, strong recommend, recommend to follow Micah Blake McCurdy for great hockey work and an updated probability chart regularly. He gives both the Edmonton Oilers and the Toronto Maple Leafs, the two remaining Canadian teams. He gives them both 12% chance. And so according to him, there's a one in four chance that the Marty McSorley curse will be broken. Well, you mean two out of the eight teams, Kate, is what you mean. He's given 25% probability to two of the eight teams. I like that. Which, by the way, is a way better way of doing playoff hockey (laughs) probabilities than an ELO model, as it turns out. Just give them all the same. By the way, the the, um, 538 ratings have it at 38% for the Oilers and Maple Leafs, 21% and 17% respectively. So again, that gives them, you know, kind of a, let's call it a 50% premium on the other six teams. So that means, you know, the other six teams are at 10% each and they're basically double that number is the way they have it scored. All right. So before we leave NHL, I'll just give you a little bit more from Micah. There are four, four series out there right now. And he has two of them at pretty much dead. Even the Vancouver Vegas, right? 5149. No, 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 the Vegas, Vegas Oilers, I think is pretty much even. I, I, said I mean, Ed, I said, I said yeah. Vancouver, I meant Edmonton. Edmonton and in Vegas, fifty-one forty-nine. Also, Toronto, Florida, fifty-five forty-five. That is edges to Toronto. But the other two are pretty skewed. I mean, Shane, you just said we shouldn't accept anything north of sixty percent. We have the we have the Stars, Dallas Stars, seventy thirty over yeah. our Seattle Kraken, and we have Carolina pushing that sixty-four thirty-six over. We, we might claim New Jersey Devils. That's not too far away, and Josh Harris does own them. And we, we did just talk to Kate Madigan. So we've got a couple of horses in this race in the in the underdog roles in these conferences. Oh no, I mean New Jersey, the Devils are too close to New York City. They're 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 a New York City team in my mind, and I am physically incapable of cheering for New York City team. <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right. Speaking of New York, we do have a New York team in the NBA playoffs. 
And we've got, again, eight teams left on that side, on that sport as well. What is the latest on the NBA from your perspective? Well, let's just start from a macro perspective. Again, I put this in the rundown. Um, All eight seeds are represented in the final eight. There's an eight, a seven, a six, a five, a four, a three, a two, and a one. So already that's first time ever. That's really fun, right? That's good. Um, Second, um, you know, to me, some, I would say in the top 10 performances in playoff history, we've probably seen two or three of them, we could argue, in in this first round. I mean, I think Steph Curry dropping 50 in game seven on the road um, has to be in the top 10 playoff performances. It is the record for game sevens ever. Um, I think Jimmy Butler dropping 56 in game five um, with the Heat series. I hate beating the Bucs, but I think that's one of them. And I think maybe I'm maybe I'm a homer on the last one, but I don't know. Last night, what James Harden did seemed pretty damn yeah. good to me when he dropped 45 on the uh, Celtics last night on the road in a game without their best player, mm-hmm. Joel Embiid. But either way, there are three. I think when we go through the history of the NBA and talk about the great playoff performances, we've seen three of them already in round one. And you can round. in lots of ways. The greatness by the greatest game seven game ever. We can look at it. Jimmy Butler had the fourth most playoff scoring in any playoff game ever in the history of the NBA. 56 points. Put him in. He missed a free throw right at the end, which bothered me because he would have tied for third. But regardless, <laughs> it's the way it was. And, and I think James Harden, it was more about, you know, he and, and I was listening to a lot of radio about this. He exceeded our mean value of him. If Steph dropped 45, we'd be like, well, of course, Steph can drop 45. Yeah. If, yeah. If, if, um, uh, if Durant drops 45, of course. Now, the James Harden of seven or eight years ago, it wouldn't have surprised anybody for him to drop 45. But for him to do it last night, in some sense, it's Y minus the mean divided by the standard deviation. Most people would have put a 2% probability or lower that James Harden against the Celtics, who are a great defensive team, would drop 45. And so that was a, that was actually the talk on sports radio was really analytical. They were saying part of the extremism of Harden's performance was it was James Harden in this scenario and given his recent past. Real quickly, I want to ask a question. We often in baseball, we talk about these Hall of Fame assessments and you talk about a peak and duration and some players get in on one, some on the other, but you really need both. And for true greatness, you want both. What is the within game equivalent of that? Because we throw around, you know, Harden's 45 and Steph's 50 and Butler's 56. That was part of it. But part of it also, it was less relevant to to, um, Steph because they won by 20. But in both the Harden and the Butler case, it was also critical moments. And flipping around, LeBron's final game in their first round series, I believe, yeah, that's right. And they didn't have a great game, but in the critical moments, he was unbelievable. And so there's, I think there's an in-game equivalent to how we assess these performances that is analogous to the way we talk about Hall of Fame baseball in that what made Butler and Harden especially critical. I mean, Harden did all that, and then he drops the game-winning three at the end, right? Never mind Butler scored whatever, the last however many points, fraction of the points in their game. So it feels like there's two elements there. Part of it's overall the total game, and part of it is in the clutch. Is that fair? Well, as you know, there are measures of clutchness now, whether we like them or not. 
We don't, but there are measures of clutchness. But, but, but Eric, we don't, it's not that we don't like them, it's that we don't think they're predictive. But we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I feel like, right, we're you don't like a, No, no, in this case, as I don't a, like a, a retrospective description of what happened, you can talk about clutchness, I think. It's just whether yeah, it's. Absolutely. You know. I just don't like the arbitrariness of the of the hard boundary. Like, right, right. It's doing the binariness of it. Clutch minutes of the game yeah. and all that. I, yeah. I like the spirit of them. And I agree with you, their lack of, you know, James Harden could have the game-winning shot and pull up, you know, miss it in the next game. So there's no autocorrelation or serial correlation necessarily in his clutchness in the next opportunity. Um, that That, I think we all agree. But I agree with you, Cade. It's not just about looking in totality it's you know maybe it's win probability added um yeah. on you know there are a couple of like if he misses that shot the sixers are probably a a 10% 5% win probability and by making yeah. that shot maybe they were an 85% win probability so that was a that's a shift of 70 or 80% i'd say that's mm-hmm. worth something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well on this kind of clutch performance and and stellar you know all time playoff performance the the Knicks and Heat series take a big blow because Butler, we don't know yet, but he had to go. He, he was so injured there at the end of game one. Similarly, Chris Paul is out and we don't know for how long against uh, the Nuggets and they're down two games already. And so it's this sad thing where we don't necessarily get to see the Chris Paul, Kevin Durant um, combination that we were looking forward to Booker in there as well. And then we've got Embiid. We're still uncertain about Embiid. And so it's just the same story year after year with the NBA. And, you know, Kawhi Leonard missed the Clippers first round series. Like the same story again and again, where these injuries are a big part of what's pushing around the probability. Yeah. And I I, I think it's just, you know, maybe in my mind, it's even worse this year. Like so many, like it's like every team, you know, all these big teams, it's been such a like series alter the injuries have been so kind of consequential i think i mean obviously there's always one or two teams that go you know get affected by them but it seems so widespread this year but maybe that's just i'm sure that's a recency bias thing but i, I agree with you Shane. but i think one thing we have to do and we could talk about this analytically meaning what does a good gm do a good gm has to integrate over the distribution of possible outcomes which includes injuries and so when you build a team if you spend 60% of your money on person X, which leaves 40% on the rest, you better be damn sure person X is playing. And build so, for depth. Build for depth. Yeah, build for depth. Well, this we might say be a transition that, then, to uh, hockey. Uh, I mean, baseball. On, on, another com- on another conversation, we might say, ah, it takes one guy to take over a playoff. And we watch Butler, or what Butler does. We, are we talking out of both sides of our mouth if we say this? No, we just want to make sure that if Jimmy Butler's healthy and playing, we can t- we can do that, but I'm saying you have to dis- you have to put in a significant probability that Jimmy Butler, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Joel Embiid, Twy Leonard, that these guys aren't going to be playing. But you know what, Eric, you can't build a basketball team on maximizing expected wins. You got to maximize the probability of winning the championships, and that depends on a lot of probability on one player, and then you just have to roll the dice on injury. That's yeah, no, the dice. I, I mean, I guess you could argue that the dice, like. In personnel decisions, you can factor that in if you've got two people with, you know, like like a younger player with a like slightly more mean or something. I mean, there's ways that you can it's it's not completely just sort of like roll the dice, essentially. I, I don't think injuries are completely random from a GM's perspective. In baseball, we can clearly see different teams having a greater propensity of injuries based on how you build that team and different teams having a more or less robust amount of depth. 
around those injury possibilities. Well, so I, I think white on in basketball, I, even though basketball is a little bit more of a payroll. I could not agree with you more, Adi, that depending on what your objective function is, you would build your team differently. And if your goal is to win the championship, you've got to take the risk of bringing in star players. There's no doubt about it. I completely agree. The objective function will determine how you construct the team. I agree. But this also has something to say to us about how we forecast. And since so much of what we do and we talk about is forecasting, you'd want to consider the robustness of a team to injuries because in your sim, you need to build in the possibility that the team is not going to stay constituted the same way. And so one of the things that's really interesting, I think, is that the Sixers have done as well as they have this year without Embiid, as great a player as he is and as singular a player as he is, you would think that they would really drop off and they haven't dropped off that much this year without him. That doesn't mean they're going to be robust through the playoffs, but so far this year without him, they've done, they're wildly over 500 and they showed it. They stylistically changed their play, which makes sense too. It's like two different teams, basically. Exactly. Okay. Super interesting. That's a quick rundown on the NHL and NBA playoffs. That's the end of first quarter here at Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling in to the second quarter now with the whole Moneyball crew. Shane Jensen is here. Audi Weiner's here. Eric Bradlow. This is Cade Massey. You guys can jump in via Twitter or email. Our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up up there. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you want us to talk about. We're always happy to hear from you. Also, by email, we have a mailbag of sorts, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Give us your notes. Let us know what you're thinking. Let us know what you're curious about. Let us know what you complain about. Whatever you got, we're interested. Drop us a note. We get as much of it on the air as we can. We read everything, respond to virtually everything we hear from you. All right, guys, rolling into our first interview segment of the week. This is Kentucky Derby Week, and so we are delighted to have a longtime friend of the show, regular guest this week of the year, Jeff Cedar is the founder, owner, and president of EQB Inc. EQB Inc. He's been in the world of horses for for decades now, he's a talent scout and buyer for unraced thoroughbred horses. He's on the analytic sides of things. He was involved in grad school in New York City and numbers and all that stuff before he even got into horses. Makes him an especially interesting guest for the show. Jeff, good to see you. Always glad to have you on the show. Hope you're doing well this Tuesday afternoon. Thank you for having me. I'm doing peachy. Peachy, Jeff. Peachy, are you calling in from your Pennsylvania farm? What's going on with you this week? I'm calling in from my Pennsylvania farm, named after where Gulliver's Travels landed at the Horses Rule, the island of Wenham, and everything's beautiful today. <laughs> That's awesome. Jeff, uh, tell us how you spend your Kentucky Derby week typically. What's going on with you typically on a Tuesday? Are you merely an interested analyst? You have other balls in the air you have to pay attention to. How much are you reveling in the biggest horse racing week of the year, at least for the for the public it is? Uh, well, first of all, one of the horses we bought is in the race. There's about 20, a little over 20,000 
falls a year. You can only be in a derby in your three-year-old year. So you got one in a 20,000 chance of being in it. We've been in it, I don't know, 10, 15 times. We've won it once. We've been second twice. And we have a horse in this year, although we probably need divine intervention for it to win. But it's still <laughs> a great honor to be. We have a mudder in there. I don't think it's going to rain. It won okay. by seven and a half lengths in New York, and the Gotham Stakes just destroyed everybody. And uh, but that was in the mud, so we'll see. Well, uh, Jeff, hold on. Tell us, tell us what the which horse it is, and then it's we need raise cane, raise cane by the stallion named Violence, and uh, we bought it for one hundred eighty thousand, which will sound like a ton of money to you. Look at a horse like uh, half it thrice that they paid a million three for, and it's uh. So it's by standards of trying to buy an unraced horse that's got everything you want, including pedigree, so the market will pay something for its offspring if you're successful. It was inexpensive. And we bought it at a sale where there was over 6,000 yearly. And we bought, I don't know, one or two. And here we, are in the, here we are in the derby again. So we're doing something right, but we are not doing it the way everybody else does. Well, so hold on, hold on. We want to hear about that, but real quickly, just give us the path from the time you buy this horse until now. How long has that been, and and what happens? But also, first, who's we? When you say we have a horse in there, who's we, and what's your role? We is EQB, and I really have one major partner, Patrice Miller. She was one of the first female jockeys in the United States. She's been a steeplechase jockey. She's got lots of guts, and though she's probably broken every bone in her body at least once, and she's. Uh, kind of a genius and a mad genius. She went, went to register for Bryn Mawr and uh, took her father's American Express card and went out the back door and hitchhiked to California and became, <laughs> and became a jockey. Too. Okay. But she's okay. Smart, smart as a whip. And she's been a jockey and a trainer and a steward at racetracks. So I'm the, when we look at horses, I'm the altimeter, but she looks out the window to see if we're off the ground. We really, yeah. I, I was the pointy headed guy with a spherical chicken until I hooked up with her. Okay. She, the combination of, you know, really one of the best eyes and one of the most experienced, smartest people of traditional horsemanship combined with all the technology that we've spent for like millions of bucks for 40 years. That's the powerful combination. Isn't worth squat okay. with and, her. And Jeff, is does she then the the trainer basically, or do y'all have no, other no. folks do the training? We're at the mercy of the own. Once we buy the horse or somewhere, we're at the mercy of whoever they pick for a trainer. And my own personal opinion is they're very, the, the really good trainers are a very short list. So we okay, so hold our breath. Let me we just make sure we have I said, a lot of so technology that would apply to training yeah. and to picking races, but we don't often get to use it. Jeff, just make sure I want to understand you're 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 playing the role of the scout and analyst and basically horse identifier. You and blood Patrice, stock agent, they call it bloodstock agent. And then do you ever have ownership stake yes, in the horse? I've had to buy certain occasionally a horse would come along. I thought it was wonderful. It didn't have a pedigree and this and that and the other. It would be $35,000. This happened twice. And I bought it anyway because it was too late. No, I couldn't get people on the phone. And none of my owners would buy it. <laughs> Nobody. It didn't have But I thought, why was it so cheap? This and that. Both of them went on to win over $700,000. And one was in the world championships twice. But unless that happens, I don't own no one. Okay, got it. Okay, one, but just trying to understand the picture here, and I'm holding off the guys because they want to get in, but I'm just trying to understand the picture here. Um, the owners who paid $180,000 $180, for this horse, are they going to do well just now that he's running? 
they're going to do well. Like as, as a stud fee or whatever, or there's going to be good economics just having made the race. Or well, the is economics it- of racing are terrible. They, very few, very few horses make stallions. Less than one half of one percent are really in the top of the thing. Ninety nine percent of people are losing money overall. It's very expensive. But we have consistently made a profit for our clients. And a lot of that is because after they're successful, they, they are sold for breeding as a broodmare or a stallion. We have okay. a track record on our website that documents the details of that. Jeff, DPP. we're just trying to understand for the moment, just the we're, we're I'm such a rube. Most of us are rubes about the economics of the industry. I'll enjoy that two minutes on Saturday, but otherwise I'm kind of oblivious. And I'm wondering, since it is such an accomplishment to merely show up and, and, and be shown into the track at, at, at Churchill Downs, is that enough to make the economics good? Or do you still need to perform well on that day in order to get a return just straight no. economics. Now, in order to get into that race, you probably had to win a very major race already. And that'll, that means you can make some money in breeding. Okay. So not all of them, but most of them have already won some really enormous, okay. uh, prestigious race. And that's how they qualify. So okay. yeah, I'm going to shut up and I, make money. Good. I'm going to shut up and, and all right. Well, um, that helps us understand a little bit. And now some of the guys have questions, Eric. So, uh, Jeff, I have two questions for you. Let me ask, let me start one at a time here. Um, Since we're a statistics and analytics show applied to horse racing, let's imagine there's four sources, and I probably am missing a few, but just humor me for a second. Let's imagine there are four sources of variation that determine the success of a horse. One is birth, let's call it genetics. One might be the trainer. One might be the jockey. And one might be idiosyncratic to the track kind of random variation. How much of the percentage is due to each of these? Like which of them is actually driving success of the horse? Would you rather have one that's great on birth, but the trainer and jockey stink? Or you even mentioned, matter of fact, I'll combine it to my second question. You even mentioned your horse is a mutter. Like that would be in bucket number four. How would you de- delineate the importance of each of these four factors? Well, first of all, if you want to hold the Queen Mary with a chain, you can't have one link that's made out of paper mache. And when, and when I started out working with the biomechanics and sports medicine and the Olympic committee movement, and uh, the champions are people without holes in all those variables. They may have, it's not enough to have the greatest this or the greatest that, the greatest pedigree, the greatest trainer, the greatest jock. It's not enough if there's a hole. So, but the great horses aren't the best at everything, but they don't have a bad anything. So you got to have it all. Uh, pedigree, most people in the industry, pedigree is considered number one. I, I think it should be number 27. because The data stinks because the horses, the market, self-fulfilling prophecy, giving the best of everything to those horses. The trainer, the trainer and the jockey cannot make the horse, but they can unmake it. And I watched them make all kinds of mistakes that screw them up. Like, uh, for example, the work, they, is a, they believe they, and the reporter's, and the handicap, oh, he worked great. He had a tremendous work this week, so he should be set up for the race. If he had a tremendous work, then he's going to lose the race because he used too much. To win a race at this level, it, they need at least three and usually four weeks of not having a tremendous effort, or they're just not going to make it. So there's so much myth and nonsense. So I would say the trainer and the jockey can screw it up, but they can't make it. But if they can screw it up, they're critical. The pedigree is almost irrelevant, although they people, other people believe it's the most important. I believe the most important 
are a series of biomechanical and exercise physiological variables of a horse. Some of them are, are what they call what, uh, congenital. Some of them aren't. You know, some of them are inheritable. Some of them aren't. The champions have bigger, stronger hearts. They have a different way. They're put together the angles and the sizes and the, the uh, lengths of the bone segments, uh, their timing of their gait. And there's a list of them. It took me forever to make that list. And I checked down it. When I buy a horse, he checks every box. So, Eric, uh, this is Adi. I, I want to, uh, Jeff, I'm going to respond to Eric's question um, with a follow up. One of the things that we in statistics always talk about when we try to understand the, the extent of a variation explained by other variables is this concept of range restriction. So when you talk about the pedigree being highly unimportant, is that in some measure due to the fact that you're only looking at um, horses that come from a decent pedigree? In other words, you're what we would call the upper end of the or upper tail of the distribution of pedi pedigree, or, and this would potentially be more interesting, it really, really doesn't matter at all. And we just can, look, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. And just any horse we can grab, as long as we train it up and give it the right track and the right food and the right. No, it has jockey. to be the right horse. There well, the right, it has to pedigree. be the right. What do you mean? It has to have I mean, obviously all, the right breed. It just can't, can't yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, you know, right no, it can have a perfect pedigree, and that may or may not mean that it's going to have the rest of what it needs. The pedigree is a prediction of what you will get when the horse is born, but it's not perfect. It's not silly. It's not useless, but it's not enough. The top sires, you pay you know hundreds of thousands of dollars to get to them. The very best in the world, over ninety percent of their offspring are not good race horses. That's not ah, a way. To, okay, but. You know, but they they do better than others, but partly because the market gives them the best chance. Uh, I forget what I'm going to say, but the pedigree, the pedigree is the, so it's not meaningless, but it's not enough. It's not. I mean, the much more powerful predictors when we isolate. Believe me, when I we did our studies, we would do them on as 12, 13, 14,000 racehorses over ten years on major racetracks, major pedigrees. And we would we would isolate all the different variables before we you know considered the the dependent variable that we were after, and we, we you know we came up with things that were much more powerful predictors than than the pedigree. And it turned out that yes, good pedigree horses had those things more often, but not but even having them more often, most of the time they didn't have them. Bad pedigree horses had them even less often, but occasionally they had them. It's like throwing snake eyes four times in a row. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it wouldn't predict it would happen, but it does happen. Low probability events do happen. You do find the, the variables, your physical variables you're looking at sometimes in pedigrees that startle you. Uh, the $8,000 mare, when they bought it, they heard somebody say, no, only a dumbass would buy that horse. And it became the, the, the mother of uh, California Chrome, who nearly won the Triple Crown. There's an example right there. And the, the two horses I had. There were nothing special in pedigree. Nobody would pick them. They were $35,000. And uh, they both did well. Pinky Pizwanski, Great Attack, and some others. So I don't, does that answer your Jeff, question? Jeff, let's, let's talk a little bit about, let's, talk, let's make it concrete and talk let about. Me, yeah, let me make it concrete. If you go to our website, we have the papers. They will tell you exactly the probabilities, how much these different variables affect the winning. The certain you know, so, of running, the, certain, the size of their heart, the thickness of their left ventricle wall. Excuse me. Jeff, so I think I wanted to summarize this statistically. What you're saying is that if you didn't have these measurements, none of these really great measurements really do predict how well a horse will do. If you didn't have them you would, you, and you only had one thing and you went on pedigree, that would offer you a little bit of advantage. 
but it would, of course, would, it would cost you, you a lot you, of money. But you what you're saying is once I have once I have all these measurements, conditionally on the measurements, I don't really need the pedigree. And in fact, I'm, I'm really looking at bargains if I found horses that don't have pedigree but do have all the measurements. I could probably buy them cheap and they're just as good. Yes. But, pe- but pedigree would, sorry to interrupt, but pedigree would still matter in the sense that as a prediction, like if you have, I mean, obviously if you're looking, if you're evaluating else, a bunch of existing yeah. horses, if you're evaluating a bunch of existing horses, it's much better to go on these direct physical measurements as opposed to the kind of their underlying genetics. But if you're like trying to buy a, a new, if, if you're thinking of like, a, you know, kind of a, a sire, the siring process, and you're thinking of future horses that don't exist yet, Obviously, you would predict that, you know, the hor- the current horses already display those great physical measurements are more likely to have offspring that also display those great physical measurements compared it's to, true, horses, but it's to not, horses it's that don't. It's not often enough to make it economic. It's often, All right, it's often enough to make it worth looking at, not often enough to make a profit. All right, guys, let's talk about this year's field. One of the fun things about the Derby, of course, is how many horses run. Everybody wants to run at this one. And then if they win it, um, they'll they'll stay in because there's obviously a shout out to the Triple Crown. But we see the field drop so much after this one. It's fun just how many. It's like t- whatever it is, 25, 26 horses this year. 20. Can you give us some commentary, Jeff, about the about the front runners? And is it as open as it seems? It doesn't seem like there's such a dominant horse this year but can you tell us a little bit about forte for example looks like the shortest odds at the moment but then it's not as blue-blooded a horse as it sounds like tapit trace is forte was bought for one hundred ten thousand. tapit trace was 1.3 million they've both run a one they're both on long streaks of wins can you tell us about those two horses just to start us off yeah well uh the fact that forte just seems to win everything he time he runs it's a big deal smarty jones supposedly didn't have the performance level of the pedigree, but he had never been beaten and he went on and didn't get beaten in the Derby either. Forte has that going for him. Uh, but there's, this is an unusual Kentucky Derby. First of all, the Kentucky Derby is only three-year-old. You get one shot at it. It used to be, this was like the debutante party for the new crop. They're not mature mm-hmm. till they're five. They used to run till they were six or seven. Nowadays, they may be retired after that, but still, it's the new crop. And Scott, mm-hmm. and in this derby, I think it's really unusual. I, the, 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 the pundits will tell you that Forte is the heavy, heavy, heavy favorite. But, okay. you know, I think it's like seven horses that might beat him. None of these horses has ever run this far. They have never run a mile and a quarter. They've gone a mile and an eighth. A couple have gone a mile and three sixteenths. They have never done that. So if I look at how, I don't look at how fast they go. I look at how they slow down and it's, it's a logarithmic curve and it's, predictive and it's rep, uh, reproducible and uh if you ext- extrapolate their fatigue curves out to see what their their likely time might be at, at the longer distance you find out that there's there's at least six of them that can do go as fast at a mile and a quarter as forte unless he shows us something he never showed before like smarty jones did so right. i think if you you know it was three to one on forte it's 10 to one 20 to one on, on horses that i think can win this is a okay. great derby for somebody to try and make the money by betting against the, the heavy favorite. But okay. by, by the way, the, the computer betting is now a huge factor. And I, I, we developed our own version of it. And it's that you, you have algorithms where you figure out uh, you bet on four or five horses and you let the computer figure out. So depending on the odds, 
you don't care which one wins. It's the identical payback. You have it calculate how much to bet, and you press the button right before the bell goes off. They've got sometimes some tracks are limiting it to right to a minute or two before. So now mm -hmm. huge amounts of computer aided betting people are pressing that button, putting in thirty bets or something at the last minute. And I think they're going to be betting against Forte. And I think you're going to. Uh, I'll stick my neck out. I think you're going to see those odds that you're going to go right to near the, the when the bell goes off, and then after the bell, they're going to drop like a uh, get worse by a lot. And, and because of the computer betting, all that will flow in from all those, uh, all those, those. Uh, okay, so so, so does that mean that we see stronger changes in odds late, these last minute shifts? Yeah, than we will see strong changes at the last minute in the odds because of the computer betters, especially in this one, because I don't think they're going to support Forte. And he, and, you know, uh, and because they don't want to screw up the odds on the others, they want the odds to be as long as possible on all the ones they think might be. Right. Right. So and, this is, uh, this obviously suggests a tip, a classic academic study of whether those closing moves actually relate to um, outcomes, whether there's a closing line value there at the end. Well, they're, um, they're smart enough that they try not to bet so much that they tilt the odds where their right. their algorithms won't work anymore. But there's too many. Right. Of them I mean, if you knew if you knew well, if you had a prediction on what was going to happen, you might want to set your computer to go against it and take Forte. At, you know, at the last second after his odds have gone longer. Yes, absolutely. But uh, I'm not doing that right now. I, I did it for a while. <laughs> I got technical. I, got, technical I had training. it working for a while doing all that, and then. There were so many people started doing it that you would you'd have the whole thing set and hit the button before they went left the gate. And then after the bell rang and it left the gate, the odds would all change. So the algorithms were all wrong and you lost. Right. You should have been 20 percent. Instead, you want exactly what you thought would happen. Instead of making 20 percent, you lost 20 percent with the calculated bets you made. So I said, well, one thing. You're definitely giving us, um, telling us to look, you know, hold loosely on these numbers and don't, you don't really want to, you know, this isn't telling us what the odds are, anything really even to close what the odds are going to be when the race goes off. But well, can you tell be, us a little bit about a couple of horses? Be, you've, you're better off holding off your bet to the last minute if the odds are important. Got it. But in the well, Kentucky Derby, often you can't make the bet at the last minute because the computers are all jammed. But anyway, right. Well, and like you said, if the odds are important, of course they are. You know, any any horse at the right price, right? And so we we should be That's comparing it. our our bets, obviously. But talk talk a little bit about a couple of your favorites. You said some ten to one and twenty ones currently. You well, think eight to one morning line Angel Empire is a monster. I like that okay. horse a lot. Skinner twenty to one. I think he can do it. And practical move at ten to one. So. So one of the things you said about Angel of Empire is that based on other factors, this should probably be the favorite. What are these other factors you like about Angel of Empire at eight to one? I watched him in the uh, Arkansas Derby, and it was so. I mean, I've been doing this for forty years. It was everything you want, and and his towel. If you look at his towel, that's that, that basically a measure of how much they're going to, how far they have to go to slow down one foot per second. So the, the bigger the number the less they're tiring. They're not slowing down. Some okay. of them were actually accelerating at the end. That's how I know they can go this distance, like tap it right. Okay. But, but uh, Angel Empire, his tower is 53,000 feet, for God's sake. He was not slowing down. And the end of that, he just destroyed the race. It was a mile on his foot, and he was not slowing down. So, I mean, that's that's a horse with a, that 
beat a so lot Jeff, of the really good horses Jeff, with a quickly, lot when, pack. when you see that, we're, you know, as on the analytics side of things, we're forever kind of cautioning people and ourselves. We're having to remind ourselves to not overreact to individual performances because there is so much within individual variation, you know? So when you see, when you see, we're, t- we're talking about angel of empire, we're talking about the Arkansas Derby. You may like him more or less before you see that race. You see that one race, it's this extraordinary performance, this one race. How do you keep yourself from overreacting given that it is just one? And these things do vary quite a bit across races within a horse. Well, it's not just one. I mean, he's won one, two, three, he's won four races. And the last okay. two were, were, really difficult major races and he won them both and they were both impressive and it okay. just kept, and it was just getting better he just gets better every race okay well and, let, uh, let me ask you a related question then that we talk about with golf and that is we we talk about in terms of non-stationarity or momentum whenever you're betting golf that you should be decaying the past at some rate more recent performance is more predictive. Recent performance is more predictive than more distant performance. It much more so than many other sports. As a matter of fact, there's just there's just more non-stationarity in golf. Golfers get in these modes and these in these um, these regime shifts. How much how much is that going on with horses? Like how much huge. does the recent it's past weigh compared to improving distance? when they're on an improving line? It's huge. It's a big deal. Okay. And when they're on a static line, it's not so good. And if the most recent performance isn't their best, that's a real red flag. Okay. 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 Um, before we let you go, give us another horse or two that you think we ought to take a long look at or might just kind of write down to, to watch and pull for on Saturday. Well, 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 I think that the other two, tap it thrice, that million three yearling. I mean, he's clearly, he's he's within, and he could do it and verify. So that's Skinner, practical move, angel of empire, tap it trice and verify. I think they're all the equivalent of Forte at the extra eighth of a mile. Wow. The other one is really uh, undefeated is Kings Barnes. He was an $800,000 two-year-old, you know, and he was accelerating at the end of his race. He wasn't getting tired. So, you know, his, the extrapolated time isn't fast enough, but he won big. He's undefeated. In the, and when he went almost this distance, he, he didn't tire. He was actually going faster at the end. So he's, he, Kings Barnes may be the, the Smarty Jones, the one that hasn't really shown enough yet, but has beaten everybody and doesn't look like we've seen his best yet. So okay. I, that that's exciting. It's also the name of a very good golf course in the St. Andrews area in Scotland. So there's another reason to jump on, to jump on that horse. I'd say it's interesting. There's just a bunch of horses in this kind of mid odds range, not too short, not too long. They're all kind of close and you're naming a number of us again, just for our listeners, just to, so, so for you to, to, to look into there's the Forte is the big favorite and you're giving us a bunch of alternatives to them. Another pricey expensive horse as a yearling was tap it trace. And you're adding a few to the list. You're saying verify verifying is worth a look Skinner practical move. We had a long conversation about angel of empire. And here at the end, you're coming into Kings Barnes and we can hear the little twinkle in your eye as you talk about Kings Barnes. Oh, yeah. Kings it's Barnes. a good list for our this, listeners, Jeff. Thank you. This technology I was using, isn't going to tell you about Kings Barnes. He's the one that, yeah, he's he's the 
the wild card. Okay. Outstanding. Well, listen, Jeff, thank you for the time. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Wish you the best out there on the farm. We'll be pulling for your horse on Saturday. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Jeff Cedar, longtime friend of the show, founder, owner, and president of EQB Inc. What was the right term? He and his partners are bloodstock agents. Bloodstock agents. I love it. Sound like a horse guy when you use that phrase. Bloodstock agent, Jeff Cedar. Long time friend of the show, Jeff. Always a pleasure. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second half of Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now, another interview segment for us. We've got the whole crew on the Moneyball side. Eric Bradlow is here. Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner. This is Cade Massey. Joining us, Sam Munson. Sam from Pro Football Focus, PFF. Early days employee. I don't know. Do you have an employee number, Sam? We have an employee number from you for PFF? You want to claim yeah, the fame think- there? I think technically we do have them in the database, you know, the, the, the PFF system that lets us log in everything. I, I was in single digits anyway. I'm not sure what my exact number was, but certainly yeah, one of the single digit guys. Spectacular. Well, as we understand it, you go back to Neil, Neil, the, the founder creator of Neil Hornsby pro football focus and remarkably coming from the other side of the pond, as they say on American football quite successfully. And it sounds like he pulled in some, like-minded folks from over there when he first got started. So Sam, you, you were a message board friend, colleague of his that got pulled in from the very beginning. Is that right? Yeah. So all of the early PFF uh, employees, I guess, if you want to use that term, I'm not sure we qualified at the time. Um, Uh We all came from the message board, the UK NFL message board. So not only were they all, um, kind of message board guys but we were pretty much all british or irish or the other side of the pond and then it was only once we got the kind of next wave of people on board guys like steve palazzolo and, and some other guys that we we became tr- cross-atlantic transatlantic right right so sam where are you based now so we're now in cincinnati ohio the uh, the pff hq when uh, chris collinsworth bought the company back in 2014 obviously collinsworth uh, a former bengal's uh, superstar wide receiver so he's located here that's where pff got relocated do y'all have in the in the world we live in today people work all over the place so do you have anybody still far oh you you know timo risque is is still in europe is that right who else is still who's in cincinnati versus distributed yeah really a, a lot of people are, are still remote um there was a push for a while to bring everybody sort of to the cincinnati hq and and a lot of people moved over here i moved here steve palazzolo eric eager when when he was working here so there were a lot of people that moved over to cincinnati and then between covid um you know we were reasonably well positioned to sort of disperse again quickly and say yep you know we've been a remote company already guys let's go home we'll figure this out later um, and then now it's the majority of the data collection guys are still obviously um, remote and, and have been all the way all along. But there's now just a kind of fairly tight band of people that are actually in Cincinnati relative to everywhere else. OK, got it. Well, you mentioned Steve, Steve Palazzolo. We've had him on the show a couple of times, I think, maybe two times anyway, in person at some of our onsite shows. But you and Steve host co-host the PFF NFL podcast. So a terrific way to get up to speed, stay up to speed on all things NFL. 
we, we, I think, you know, have been friends, supporters, fans of PFF's work from the beginning. You guys put out a lot of good product and that podcast is one of them. Sam, we wanted to talk to you today to hear about the draft, um, one of the big events from last week and the biggest offseason event in the NFL cycle. What stands out to you about this year's draft? What do you think the hallmarks of this year's draft were? Yeah, I think there were a lot of things. It's a very unusual draft. Um, Before the draft itself, I think the standouts were the relative weakness, I think, of the draft in in a lot of ways. It wasn't big on really top end talent you know you'd hear people talk about blue chip prospects every year there really weren't many this year and you could argue there weren't any in fact um when you you sort of factor in everything right like jalen carter has his legal issues to worry about will anderson maybe never quite hit the heights of the the true blue chip uh edge rusher prospects each one of the quarterbacks had something that would scare you about them so you could definitely make the case that there were no blue chips in this this draft And then once we got to the draft itself, I I think the real standout for me, certainly early, was there seemed to be a a huge rate of even players that you didn't necessarily love or guys that had a weakness or or something to worry about. The fit that everybody went to seemed to be unusually good this year, like guys that had something that needed to be worked on, landed in the perfect situation to work on it, or a specific red flag makes sense uh, gone to a particular team. That give us a couple of examples real... of that, Sam. This seems well, very important, but can you, can you give us a couple of examples? Yeah, so a few of them, I think, jump out. The the, the Patriots grabbed a couple of defensive players in their first couple of picks. Christian Gonzalez, Keon White, the edge rusher from Georgia Tech. Both of those guys, I think, are actually quite raw as actual technicians, as prospects. Um but they go to Bill Belichick, you know, the, the greatest defensive coach of all time. So you get these spectacular athletes that land probably the best possible situation for them to be really good down the line. Jalen Carter, you know, has a couple of issues, whether it's his legal uh, problems, whether it's the fact that he's never played more than, you know, 300, 400 snaps in a season in that really heavy Georgia rotation. He goes to Philadelphia, who A, have a really heavy rotation themselves on the defensive line, and B, have already been stockpiling kind of leaders from that Georgia defense that are probably better placed than anybody to keep Jalen Carter on the straight and narrow, if that's a concern. And then the one more that would jump out is Anthony Richardson, the sort of real block of clay from a, a, a football prospect standpoint, goes to Indianapolis, who obviously have a new head coach, Shane Steichen, who comes from Philadelphia, where they've basically just run this game plan with Jalen Hurts over the past few years. So if anybody is going to have an an understanding of how to prop up a quarterback for a couple of years, using Mm -hmm. the run game, using what they can do on the ground and and let them develop as a passer, it's it's Shane Sykin in that Indianapolis Colts offense. Terrific. Yeah, I just want before we transition just real quickly, we I think historically have underestimated the role of development and fit in our yeah. forecast of yeah. players. I think it's something that's come on, you know, over the last 10 years or so, but historically it's just like we, we were kind of fit agnostic or at least fit oblivious. And now teams are getting more credit for being good with development and we're more sensitive to the importance of it. Shane. Well, I was, I, I really like the kind of observation. I think you made it on your own podcast as well about the Eagles kind of that, that the fact that, you know, they they are kind of, I guess, outlying in terms of the NFL in terms of how much their rotational defense 
And that uh, kind of, you know, that that I, I guess, could you speak a little bit more about like, you know, how how outlying are Philadelphia and Georgia? Are, are they like such a unique pairing in terms of rotational or are there a lot of teams? I guess I don't know, know as much as you do about how what the distribution of how much teams rotate versus not uh, is across the NFL. So how I guess how unique or kind of optimal was this particular pairing between the college and professional? Yeah, I, th- I think there there's a spectrum, you know, and Philadelphia is at one end of the spectrum. I'm not sure there's a team in the league that rotates as much or as deep as they do. Um, and then there are other teams at the other end of the spectrum where they'll have two guys and they basically won't come off the field, you know, if they don't need them to. Certainly on the edge, the interior tends to have a little bit more rotation as a, a baseline. Um, a lot of it is it's a talent thing. Like you, you might want to run seven deep along the defensive line, but if you don't have the horses to do it, you know, every time you go into the bench, you're voluntarily making yourself worse. And there's where that balance is, right? If I've got two, three really good guys along the defensive line, I know at some point I'm going to need to give those guys a rest, but I also know that when I do that, my defensive line isn't as good. So I think sometimes you get teams that would like to rotate a lot more, but but just can't because they don't have the bodies. But Philadelphia clearly covets that as a as a principle, and they want to get as deep as possible along that defensive line. And no matter how many players they have, they keep reloading and they keep bringing in extra bodies, whether it's free agency or the draft. And this Georgia defense, I think, is a similar idea. Clearly, they want to do that, but you also need the talent level and the recruiting classes. And you have to look at the last couple of drafts to see the kind of talent that that Georgia defense had to enable them to rotate as much as they have. Mm-hmm. And it's reflected in their draft, in their uh, recruiting rankings over the years as well. They're one of the few schools that go that deep. That's like the prize, the most prized position in high school recruiting are these big defensive linemen and they just stack them up. They in Alabama really just stack them up. Eric. Tim, I want to ask you two questions. One is about interaction effects and the other is about heterogeneity, but let me frame it in the following way. Let me talk about the interaction one first. How much extra value is there now that the Eagles have four players from Georgia who all played with each other? Do you put any stock? Does PFF or does Sam Monson put any stock that there'll be either a faster learning curve or there might actually be interaction effects between players that have played with each other. Then I have a second question also, but let's get to that one first. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we haven't done a, a ton of studies yet in terms of that interactivity and how much the, there is. I know basketball is is much further ahead with that kind of analysis than football is yet. It's definitely a kind of frontier that we're looking to get into. Um, my own kind of personal view on it is it can't hurt. Right. I don't know if it's having a huge boost effect or anything, but there's no way it's a downside. And again, particularly when you're talking about players like Jalen Carter, you know, a guy that that clearly had as much talent as any defensive player in this draft, but is dealing with at minimum some maturity issues, you know, with his uh, arrest and, and the way that whole thing worked out. We're at the very minimum, we're dealing with a guy that at least doesn't seem to be as mature as some other prospects out there. And surrounding him with teammates that not only uh, were leaders in that Georgia defense, guys like N'Kobe Dean, but guys that have also been in the NFL now for at least a year. You know, they've had that transition period. They've just done it all. They understand how it works. They can also kind of help them along just in terms of, you know, where to live, what all those kind of really basic things that nobody even thinks about, but are probably quite a stressful thing for a guy that's 20, 21 years old, trying to work out on the fly as he adjusts to being a professional player. So, yeah, I, the bottom line is we don't know yet, but I suspect there is a, uh, a factor and I suspect it helps. 
just one follow-up to something you said earlier. Do you guys do fatigue curves at all at PFF? The reason I'm asking is, could the seventh best Eagles lineman, because they rotate so many defensive linemen, because they rotate so many players, could that person, even if they're only 85% as good, be better than a fatigued top 20 player who's now playing their 60th, 70th snap of the game? So would I rather have seven people who are maybe not quite as good than as opposed to four that are really good that have to play a lot? Sam, this yeah, is I, Eric, Eric is informed in this question by our interview in the last segment on horse racing, which apparently is all about fatigue curves. So it's on his mind. The the short answer is we looked into that a long time ago, back before we had intelligent math people, you know, working things in PFF. So back <laughs> when it was a bunch of guys like me who have a history and politics degree and you know, Ben Stockwell, whose degrees in biology or something ridiculous like that. We had a whole bunch of guys who had no idea what we're doing. We did look into it on a very basic level. I don't know if the R&D guys since that have actually dived into it too much, but there was evidence that, you know, there is a certainly when from pass rushers, which is the area we, we looked at it uh, for that there was an obvious uh, point at which there's diminishing returns, you know, and, and if you're going to have Jared Allen playing, a thousand plus snaps in a season, it's going to have a negative effect at some point. But the critical point is that the point you mentioned, where is that crossover? You know, where does it right, become exactly. less uh, worthwhile having Jared Allen on the field versus his backup? It's the kind of thing that with current technology, we should be able to say much more about. And some teams surely are just right on the edge of that thing. But it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a great question. Sam, I want to stay with this Philadelphia, Georgia thing for a moment. There, some folks have made much of the fact that they have taken so many Georgia players. And then the, prior to that, they've kind of heavy on Alabama players. And there's supposedly some philosophical shift in the last few years after not being so big school or even blue blood or SEC school oriented. Do you have a philosophy or position on whether there's an advantage to be had by focusing on those kinds of programs? They just to be clear, they in Ohio State or and, and and up until the last couple of years, probably Clemson have been kind of head and shoulders in terms of talent and accomplishment at the college level. Is what's the argument? Because it feels like it kind of goes both ways. On the one hand, they recruit the best players and they have great institutions in terms of developing them. On the other hand, they're surrounded by great players. And so it's a little bit harder to, it's hard to judge the impact of any given guy if he's got five-star guys on both sides of him, right? So I, how do you net out on this thing? And do you think people are making too much of this philosophy of Howie? I mean, Howie's great. They run a great ship. It's probably the best run organization. Well, let's just say one of consensus, one of the best run organizations in the NFL, but that doesn't mean that everything they do is correct. What's your, what's your thinking on this? So my feeling on it is I think what it does is remove some of the variables from evaluating players, you know, which I think a lot of the pushback that's currently happening with Howie right now is, well, you know, nothing he's doing is genius. You know, like, yeah, sure. But but simply taking the the best percentage along the way is actually where the edge is. Everyone else is trying to find the way to go against the grain, at which point you just negatively affect your expected outcome constantly trying to look for that one you know mm -hmm. actual edge whereas so when you start targeting players from georgia and alabama and these you know real blue blood incredible programs what you do is remove the variable of well how much of this guy 
is how much can we develop once we get them into an NFL program and an NFL nutrition program and a weight room and you know all these other things that are sort of open questions for guys to play at, at certain schools or conferences or all these kind of things. When you're taking a guy from that Georgia defense, you know he's NFL ready. I mean, he's you've seen it. There's no extra to be had. You're basically looking at an NFL player on a college football field playing alongside NFL players in an NFL scheme. So I think there's a huge degree of certainty to take those players and know how it translates to your scheme and not have to kind of work the guesswork of, you know, how much do we scale up this player if we take him out of, you know, whatever, like Louisiana tech, right? Like how much extra can we get out of him simply by putting him in our program before we get to where he is on the field and, and how much help he had around him and, and all those kinds of things. I wonder if that might suggest that it's a, you, you might say, well, you don't want to have all your picks, perhaps you like variance and some you like variance and, and you have to somehow um, find players that other teams don't value as much. But maybe one argument is take that out, take that off for those top picks, those super important high value picks and then play with variance and the Louisiana Techs of the world in the latter half of the draft as opposed to I was going to be uh, Kate just asked my question. I was going to say reduce variance on day one, add variance on days two and three. Right. And I also look, there's something too when you have like that Georgia defense, certainly 2021, we're talking about maybe the greatest defense in college football history. When you're sort of cherry picking the standout players from that, like the guys that jump off the tape, when you watch that that Georgia defense in any game, you're probably doing something right. You know what I mean? Like there's (laughs) Jalen Carter is a great example. Like doesn't matter who you were watching over the last two years. Jalen Carter was the guy that was jumping out. If you were watching Trayvon Walker tape, your eye was drawn <laughs> to, to Jalen Carter. If you were watching Devontae okay. Wyatt tape, your eye was drawn to Carter. So if you're okay. getting that guy, I mean, it, like it doesn't matter what college program he was at. You're probably getting a really good player. Okay. So one, one to use that to transition to another issue in the draft. And that was the extraordinary move that the Texans made to not only take their pick at number two, but then to come right in, trade back up to get to number three. And you already said something that might give away your position. We being analytics, you're a little skeptical about trading up to that part of the draft. But also, you already said people are dubious about the kind of generational talent in this particular draft. Jalen Carter is the only one you'll give that praise to. And he had enough question marks that you don't. But these guys take a QB up there and then they trade up for another guy who, to be fair, a year ago, people thought Will Anderson might be that guy. It's just that in the last year, it didn't prove out as much. And so just the fact that the draft was intended to be, was thought to be a little light at the top would argue against spending that much capital to get a couple of picks off the top. But in more generally, man, that was flashy. And what are your, what are your, what are your thoughts on it? Oh, it was absolutely flashy. Um, My thoughts are simply, it's almost impossible for Will Anderson to be good enough to justify the amount they gave up to make that happen. And I don't think that's specific to Will Anderson. I don't think that's specific to this draft, but it it certainly doesn't help. You know, you fold all those elements in together, and I think it probably magnifies the degree to which this is an error if you're Houston. You know, right now, if you look at the sort of futures totals, that could be the first overall pick in the draft that they gave up to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Will Anderson might be the cleanest overall prospect in this draft when you factor in everything together he doesn't have you know the off-field red flags that Jalen Carter does maybe he doesn't have quite the on-field production but he's not that far behind so I think they added a really good player but somebody retweeted a, a tweet of mine recently from you know, the draft a couple of years ago when there were reports that 
Atlanta was desperately trying to trade up uh, high into the draft to to get uh, Chase Young, and Washington just wasn't listening to phone calls. And at the time, I said, look, given, I forget how far down Atlanta was, but given the distance they were going to have to jump to get to that number two spot, Washington should be falling over themselves trying to trade that pick away because yeah. the, the haul will be worth more than Chase Young. There's almost no way that that can't be the case unless you whiff on like every single pick. So as as good as Will Anderson is, it's just going to be almost impossible for them to to justify that deal down the line unless all of those picks end up being, you know, disasters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it does smack of uh, desperation. I mean, they've been behind the public relations eight ball since, you know, de- dealing Deshaun Watson. They got a bunch out of that. Maybe some of that draft capital is burning a hole in their pockets, but you know, it feels like they, okay. So they, they won in some sense, April, but they sure did pay a big price and it might make them a little bit better in some ways in the short term, but it is a steep price. You worry about that intermediate term. It's not, people don't want to go through the slow rebuild, right? They don't, they don't want to, they don't want to admit that it's four years to dig out of this hole that they're in and they're going to try to get out there faster, but man, that's, that may, that may mean they stay in there longer. Um, Another questionable move that people take shots at were, you know, the Lions, they made a couple of maybe questionable moves, but what's your position now on, on running backs? And a couple of interesting things about the first round running backs, Bijan at eight and then Jameer Gibbs at whatever that number was, 12, 13, well, 14. I think, yeah. Um, so Bijan, obviously some people had him on consensus, one of the top, I don't know, very high on the board just overall, but then, you know, are running backs that valuable? He's a little exceptional in that way. And then Jameer Gibbs might be exceptional because the running behind that Lions line might prove, you know, quite, quite productive. But in general, we're inclined to be skeptical. What are your, what are your thoughts about the running backs in, in round, round one? I think they're I think they're two different or different conversations. I think they're separate entities. Um, B. John Robinson falls into the category uh, to me of he's special enough that you at least have the conversation about which rules, which tenets of running back production and value and all those kinds of things. Which ones are we prepared to bend for Bijan Robinson? Because okay. I think he's special enough that he starts to go into the Quentin Nelson category of he changes the rules. Quentin Nelson is a guard. You don't take a guard in the top 10. They did. And Quentin Nelson wasn't just the best guard in the NFL. He was the most valuable offensive lineman in the NFL for the first three, four years of his career, according to PFF wars numbers. So, and he Sam, by, the, by the way, that that was that was well forecasted by people as well. People thought he was a basically a no risk prospect at a lower exactly. positional. And, value. and that's that's where I think it does start to change things when the degree of certainty that a guy isn't just going to be good, but is going to be, you know, special. Is that clear? I think you can start to ask those questions of, OK, this is where we would normally draft a running back, like all regular circumstances. But we know this guy is different. How different, you know, how much are we prepared to bend on those rules? So I think Bijan Robinson belongs in the first round. I think you could make a strong case for him to get taken in anywhere in the second half of the first round. And then once you start to get higher than that, that's when I think you need to look at it case by case and say, okay, how good is that team? You know, what else are they leaving on the table? All those kinds Uh of things. I, I wouldn't have picked him if I was Atlanta. 
I'd have thought about it if I was Philadelphia, but that's probably in a, a Jalen Carter, non-Jalen Carter world, you know, where he's not on the board. But, mm-hmm. you know, borderline top 10, I think you could make an argument for Bijan. Jameer mm-hmm. Gibbs, I think, is a much different case. I think that's just a harder sell across the board. Yes, he's fast. Yes, he's got some skills. But, you know, the difference between Jameer Gibbs in the first round and, you know, a guy like Devin Achain in the third, I think he ended up going. Like, I just don't think that that's the same conversation you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very good so the patriots uh they i i think they always, they always do something unexpected to me uh in in uh the draft this year they uh they took both a punter and a kicker i think it's the first time in something like 25 years or 20 20 plus years that a team has taken both a punter and a kicker in the same draft you know, I, and I probably that doesn't happen very often because people don't usually like to waste their draft resources or waste use their draft resources on those positions. The Patriots do have that the needs at those positions. What do you kind of think about something like that? Is it would you ever want to do that even if you had needs at both punter and kicker? Yeah, I think the the specialist is a difficult um, conversation when it comes to drafting. Certainly, the, the higher you go, the harder it is. I, I think ultimately, it's very difficult to actually identify certainly the kickers. Punter is a little more clear cut. I think you can make an easier case there. But for kickers, I think it's really hard to identify the ones that are actually going to be top tier NFL kickers. And certainly for the long term, because other than Justin Tucker, everybody has his moment in the sun and then they tend to go through a period where they just like forget how to kick get the yips, you know, go into this crisis of confidence and are almost invariably drop kicked out of the building from whatever roster they're on. And then they have to resurface somewhere else where they right. go through like a second career. You know, Daniel Carlson right now is a good example of that. The The Vikings had to get rid of him because he missed a couple of really critical kicks for them. And he was that highly touted, you know, uh, decent prospect. And now he's one of the better kickers in the NFL for the Raiders. But do we know that that's going to continue or are we six months away from Daniel Carlson having another crisis of confidence and then the mm-hmm. whole cycle starting again? So if unless you can find Justin Tucker, it seems really difficult to sort of bank a draft pick on, on getting that guy. Sebastian Janikowski, what was yeah, your first so, I mean, It is worth pointing out that the last time it did happen was the Raiders taking Sebastian Janikowski and Shane Lecter in the same draft, and both of them ended up being incredible at their position. I mean, if you could, if you could get the uh, Shane Lecter and Sebastian Janikowski out of a draft, I think you would do it. But I think I think Janikowski is another one of Sam's. Maybe for this player, you bend the rules if you're so sure. <laughs> if this is Quentin Nelson, if this is Bijan Robinson, I mean, hopefully Bijan works out that way. We did feel that way about Sebastian Janikowski. Now, every time you feel that way, it doesn't work out. But and I mean, did. he was a first round pick too. So I feel <laughs> oh, like exactly. And and even with like he ended up being a really good kicker over his career, but even at the start of his career, wasn't looking great. And I don't know if he would have made it to that, you know to the, the point that he did oh, if he hadn't been a first-round pick. Like, if he'd just been a regular oh, first-round kicker, Seabass might have ended up been. being a star for the Chargers down the line instead of right. the Raiders. <laughs> right. So, so, Sam, let me ask a question. But, I, by the way, I, this isn't a, my question, just a comment. Maybe you guys are forgetting my Buccaneers picking Roberto Aguayo. But let's ignore that for a second, by the way, which I think was more recent than Janikowski. But maybe I've got the years messed up. But either way. No, definitely. Uh, okay. Yeah. So here, here's my question. The type of counterfactual thinking that both you and Kay just mentioned. For me to draft B. John Robinson, he'd have to be the next Saquon Barkley. For me to draft this kicker, he'd have to be the next Justin Tucker. 
How much of that, and I think that's a great way to put it, and how sure are you that that's actually true? How much of that, I'll call it comparison and counterfactual thinking, do you think for, uh, teams go through when they're thinking about drafting a player in, or he has to be the next Quentin Nelson. Yeah, well, good luck. Or Anthony Munoz. Yeah, good luck on that. So how much of that thinking do teams do from an analytics perspective so that that in some sense, drafting a running back or a guard, which people or a kicker, which people say you should never do, but it would be under certain counterfactual thinking. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think the answer is probably too much, which is where it gets difficult, right? Because I'm convinced this year that Bijan Robinson is probably in that Quentin Nelson bucket of being special enough that it changes the rules. But when you start looking for that, that's how you get into trouble. And you start looking for the exceptions mm-hmm. instead of you know, playing the percentages and then eventually an exception will manifest and will show itself. And it's that knowing when to break the rules, I think, is really the key to all of this. And and at the moment, I suspect teams look for it a little bit too much and default a little bit too much in saying this guy is special. This guy is an exception. Well, well really, let me give you, let me give you an example. There's a terrific example from this draft from this, you know, from a very high profile guy later in the draft. So the Eagles the 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 kings of stacking edges the kings of following the rules what's the biggest rule what's the single biggest edge you can get in the draft it's to it's to trade a current pick for a, a better pick next year the returns when we estimated that years ago the returns were like 137% just and that's not a typo and i mean literally 137% in a year that's the return you get in expectation following that simple rule that you get a round improvement if you wait a year. So here's the, and and teams want to do that. And the smart teams actively pursue it. And here come the Eagles in round four, I think this year, and they see Kelly Ringo on the board and they're excited about him. And they say that he was so good and so high on their board that it was worth next year's third round pick. And so it's exactly this example of what Sam's saying is like, there's a hard important rule here. This is the, one of the sharpest teams in the league. And they made an exception because their assessment of Ringo was that he was that good. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, and by the way, that begs the question of, well, if he thought he was that good, why didn't you just trade back into the third round this year, you know, <laughs> take him in the first place? Like, why do we need to go to the trouble of messing around with next year's third round pick? Well, let me ask you a question, Sam. Kate's question brings up a fascinating point. How likely is it that a fourth round pick year T would be greater than any third round pick one could get in year T minus one or T plus one. Cause that's basically a 30 spot difference. So is there that much year to year variation where something like that playing the odds, I don't mean a specific instance, but if one's going to play this game for the long run, would one ever trade forward or, you know, round, you know, fourth round one year trading a third round or the next year. Yeah, the only time I'd be I'd be willing to do that is if you had a pretty strong early indication that the next year's draft class was a lot worse than this one, you know, and you're willing is my point, a lot worse. Yeah, and you're willing to play that game because you think the picks next year are just not going to be anything like as as valuable as they are this year. I don't think that works this year because I think this year's draft was reasonably weak and the chances of next year's being even worse just based off what we know about that year's draft already. I just don't think that's a, a big uh, a factor in this one at all. Um, but that would be the only circumstance I think you'd be willing to entertain that as a, a concept. You talked a little bit about the Eagles trading back, you know, trading trading to get to get uh, Ringo, I guess, in the fourth round. But 
what troubles me a little bit is why wouldn't other teams come up with the same view if he was such a sure thing relative to his draft position, obviously? Uh, it seems that they are making some sort of gamble here, at least implicitly, statistically, I'm seeing that I'm seeing that they have to be either seeing something that other people don't see or they're doing, which could be, um, or which is great on their, their, their score, or they're taking a chance. Yeah, I, I think they're taking a chance. They, they like Keely Ringo. Um, you know, his biggest selling point is a couple of things. He's very young, which is worth pointing out. You know, there is theoretically development t- to be done there. They also have a couple of starters. They don't need him to play right away. You know, they, they might be projecting what they can create out of Keely Ringo and, and thinking that's worth the shot. And he's really he's got the physical size. He's like 6'2", 210 pounds. Like he's built like you want a cornerback to be built. He's got straight line speed as well. Where he falls down is change of direction that just isn't there right now. You you know, you hear the stiff-hipped type of thing from scouts, but it shows up in change of direction numbers as well. They don't, uh, he almost has that overlap thing where the guy has a faster 40 time than a short shuttle time, which is extremely rare, but tends to very strongly signify guys that do not change directions well. Trey Waynes had that years ago, and that was a real sort of uh, hallmark of his play. So there's definitely risks with Keely Ringo, and there, you know, there's a reason that he slid as far as he did. He was uh, talked about as a fringe first-round guy on the consensus board and ended up slipping as far as he did. So, yeah, the, the only conclusion you can have about that, I think, is Philadelphia is rolling the dice that he's a better player than most everybody else thinks he is. So we do see smart teams do this, sharp teams do this, and the fact that they stack edges as often as they do gives them more room to make these plays. And, of course, you give them license to do it. I mean, it, it all depends on their assessment on a given player. And as long as they're not doing that all the time, then right. who are we really to argue? They've got their assessment. They need to live by their assessment. Sam, we're going to have to let you go, but on the way out, maybe you can give us one question that you're taking away from this draft that you're going to be especially interested to see play out over the next year or two years. What's one thing you're curious about and you're really curious whether it's going to play out well or poorly for somebody who made that call? I I guess the the most pressing one is probably uh, CJ Stroud. Um, The talk about CJ Stroud and the S2 cognition scores that were sort of widely leaked and circulated around to me is fascinating. Um, we don't know what S2 cognition really means yet. You know, it's a pretty new test. It's just sort of gaining popularity. Everybody's talking about it right now. Obviously, the early sort of signs that they're they're pointing to as the, the guys that own the thing are, you know, there's a really tight correlation between guys that score really high and, and being really good NFL players. Brock Purdy scored in the 90s. Drew Brees was in the 90s. You know, all these good players with these really high scores. Well, what we don't know is what happens when a guy hits the league scoring you know, under the 20th percentile somewhere, which is what CJ Stroud is reported to, to have scored. Um, a guy who's, I think you see that on his tape. You see some issues with uh, immediate kind of cognition, quick uh, lightning adjustments on the play, play under pressure, all those kinds of things. So did this test show something that was there, was, was a weakness in his game and could be a real cap on his play? Or is he going to be the outlier? You know, he said something like, I'm, I'm not a tester, I'm a football player. Is he going to be able to show that, okay, S2 is a nice thing, but it's like the wonderlick. It doesn't really mean that you're going to be a good or a bad player. It's just another data point out there. So seeing how CJ Stroud goes over the next few years, I think is probably the most interesting thing from this draft. It's super interesting and high value being the number two pick in the draft and consequential being the quarterback 
Super, super interesting. All right. Listen, Sam, thanks, man. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the thoughts. Super insightful spending a little time with you here this afternoon. No problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst at Pro Football Focus. You can follow him on Twitter, PFF underscore Sam, PFF underscore Sam. Also, he hosts the PFF NFL podcast with Steve Palazzolo, one of our longtime guests here on Wharton Moneyball. That is the end of Q3. We still have Q4 ahead of us. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter, fourth and final quarter of our two hours on sports analytics. Just off the line with Sam Monson, Sam of PFF, talking NFL draft. NFL draft was last week, of course. Lots to dig into there. We've got a short segment here at the end of the show. We're going to do a little bit more of the draft, and then we're going to transition over to baseball. Gents, um, I'm curious if you had a chance, by any chance, did you go see Kevin Cole's analysis of the NFL draft? I thought it was super interesting. Um, Kevin, of course, at Unexpected Points Added, formerly PFF, but he's got his own thing going on, Unexpected Points Added, we're always referring to his work. He does great work. And what I love about what he did on the draft, you know, people are always running these grades. You know, Mel Kuyper obviously famously grades everybody's draft afterwards. And it's all about, you know, did they pick the players that, you know, Mel Kuyper thinks they should have picked or whatever. And what we've learned over the years is that generally team, it's hard to know who picks their best players and teams don't typically outperform year over year other teams in their ability to pick players, but teams do vary in how they allocate their draft capital. And we know a few things about that by trade and teams do vary on whether they tend to pick premium positions. Positional value in the draft is a big source of variation. And so you can just take a straight up analytics look at this thing and say, yeah, I mean, the only thing we can really say about picking a particular player was, did you get them before the mocks thought you really needed to or did he fall to you and maybe you got him a little value? And so Kevin does all these things. He combines all three of those factors into evaluating how, how teams did in the draft. And in combining those, he's, he, he gives more weight to the ones that are a source of greater variation. So, for example, the trades are a huge source of variation. So you can imagine that the Cardinals come out looking good here. The Bears come out looking good here. The Texans don't look as well as good. And then the next biggest fact is the next biggest source of variance is positional value, especially at the top of the draft. Our team's taking these top tier positions, the edges, the interior defensive guys, left tackles, QBs, of course. And that's a big source of separation. And then the third factor, much less, is did it, he calls it discipline. It's lovely even term, discipline. Did you wait for the guys where that you needed to take them as opposed to, you know, getting impatient and jumping ahead of where the mocks would have said they would go. And so anyway, I just, as, as usual, Kevin's done some real nice, very kind of religiously analytics work, but I think it's smart. And um, it's a, it's, it's one of the only things we can say with some confidence at the end of the draft is how people allocated the draft capital much more than did they pick this guy over that guy? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's telling, I, I, I mean, to see, to look at something, I, I mean, again, I, I think it's so impressive that, that the Eagles, for example, do I think have this process by which uh, they, they they are they they value kind of the number you know they're always kind of thinking of the future and they're drafting even when they have clear kind of 
needs with their current team. And I mean, they're kind of dra- drafting kind of that that process played out over the last couple of years resulted in them this year being this, you know, they were almost Super Bowl champions. They made it to the Super Bowl and yet got probably one of the top three kind of people in the or certainly how many Super Bowl champions have a top 10 pick in the next draft. That's right. That's I mean, right. the whole process is set up to avoid what the Eagles are doing through kind of good management and good planning right. over, That's over right. multi-years. And I think, patience of an or, I think patience of an organization is huge in this, you know, the Texans, what they're doing screams win now. And it's weird to see win now from a, a team that's so has so many holes, but you know, it's probably because the executives at Great. Houston are in win now mode. Shane, and one of the things you're saying is we kind of learn an organization's true colors in the draft. This is one of the things that's really kind of interesting about the draft. It's not just about the players. It's that we learn something about the organization and the way they conduct themselves over these three days. Related comments was, I like what you said, Cade, that a lot of times you, you, I mean, you can say, well, I wouldn't have drafted that player. Well, that's first of all, you know, they might, the other team, the team might be right. But I think the bigger issue is when they say at the draft, Regardless of whether the team took that player, they could have gotten that player 15 picks later. That to me is the most interesting type of analysis because, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe Bijan Robinson is a generational player, but the, the, could the Lions have traded back to 13, gotten a third round or a second round piece of talent also, and still drafted Bijan Robinson? That's always the interesting. And then even when we talk about the Eagles, think about what they did, which you could debate whether it was necessary or not. They were sitting at 10 and traded up to nine to get Jalen Carter. Now the question is, did they have some knowledge that someone was going to jump ahead of them? Or it's just one pick, one single pick. And I think they gave up, I forget if it was a third rounder or a fourth rounder to move up to that slot. And you could say, maybe that's not a lot if Jalen's a generational player, but what's the probability someone was going to take exactly that guy, given eight teams had already passed on him, that's I'm saying that's the type of thinking on draft day and even in the postmortem, if you'd like, I love thinking about. Which is, again, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons that 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 Kevin chose the word discipline, because even the way you're describing it, it's so clearly requires. Discipline. Can, can you give me the verdict on that trade? I mean, we're hearing two things. I'm hearing Jalen Carter is a generational player. I'm also hearing he's got a lot of uncertainty. And I'm hearing that this was a smart move on the Eagles or not such a smart move. What's the final verdict? I mean, I I think it's uh, my verdict is he's got a lot of uncertainty and then none of that is realized. Should they have done it? I mean, well, you want a verdict now? (laughs) No, 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 not on the verdict, on the, on the decision, not on the, not on the actual outcome. Should they have traded up, traded those picks to go from 10 to 10? What I would say is it depends on what their assessment of the player is. I mean, this is why I'm hesitant to criticize any given trade, because if they have a sufficiently high value on that guy relative to the next person they could take, then whatever, it's up to them. to and, make and this they That's why real, they have scouts. But my, I worry, str- I worry whenever the same organization makes that decision in the same direction year after year after year, because it's unlikely they're going to be that much smarter than market every time, Eric. Let me also build on something you said earlier in the show about when we were talking about the NBA and building your objective function. I think we'd all agree the Eagles are close to winning the Super Bowl. Matter of fact, they were a play away, right? So now what you're giving up is, so I could come up with two. Let me just clear what they did. They traded the 10th pick and a 2024 fourth rounder to move up one spot. So a couple possible things that rationalize that. And that's what we do as economists all the time. What rationalizes that? One is today's worth more than the future. 
especially for a team that's near winning the Super Bowl. Secondly, as far as we know, they've got 18 picks next year. And you know what? Having a 19th doesn't help them that much. And so if and maybe they've also looked at next year's draft and decided there's no one at Jalen Carter's potential ability. So I'm just saying, rather than saying it's right or wrong, why don't we think about what would have to be true to rationalize that as being a good thing to do? And then we can decide whether we believe what those rationales are today worth more than tomorrow's one of them. We're Epsilon away from winning the Super Bowl. And if this guy's got Epsilon, let's take him. These are all rationales that would, there are many rationales, and maybe that's a good thing for the Eagles that would justify this trade. Well, I'm going to respond to that. I mean, it actually puts it in context with Cade was saying, which was they would have, they have clearly, they probably have a model about Jalen Carter that's a little different than other teams. And I guess what you're saying is it probably doesn't have to be that much different given their priorities. And therefore, it might make sense to them, but another team might not have done it, given where they are in their prospects of winning the Super Bowl. Building on exactly the objective function maximization argument you talked about, where you need superstars in the NBA, I'm making the same objective function argument here. Guys, we could talk about the draft, um, I'm I'm quite sure, for another hour. And I want to say just one last thing, but I'm really just putting in a pin for a future conversation because we had Brian Burke on the show last week, the ESPN Brian Burke, not the NHL Brian Burke and talked simulator, ESPN draft simulator, and a great fun, great forecasting tool. And then Brian goes and catches a whole bunch of flack because ESPN reports whatever they reported, 0.1% chance that Will Levis would fall out of the first round, and he fell out of the first round. And so there's this question, and we can't take it up in the time we have today, but it's an interesting modeling question for us. How do you capture that? Like if you were going to revise Brian, we don't know all the details of his model, but if you were going to bake in the possibility of these kind of long slides, what would you do? One way to think about it is, did he have enough variance in the model? And if not, where would that variance come from? However, I do have an important quote from Brian, not important. I, I, I think a, a piquant quote from Brian, just in, in exchanging texts with him over the last couple of days, because he did take a lot of flack over that. But he says, he says, and he, let, he said he was okay to quote him. The, y'all will like this. The irony about uncertainty in the model, like we talked about on the show, was that the chief complaint about the SIM tool was that the underlying probabilities were too random. Users would see things happen in the SIMs they were un, that were unexpected, and they'd scoff at how unrealistic it was, which we talked about. But then the chief complaint on draft night was that it wasn't random enough because it had too small a probability on Will Levis falling. So I think Brian captured it really well. It's one of the things that happens with a good sim is that people are seeing things they can never imagine happening, but that's a, that's a sign of a good sim. But there's an important question, a modeling question that we'll take up on another occasion. I want to give you guys some time to talk about baseball. This is such a busy non-baseball time of year that we keep on scrunching it, but let's take a few minutes on highlights for y'all around the uh, world. Well, I have the most baseball highlight, like just headline of all time, of most, most Los Angeles Angels headline of all time. Mike Trout had a pair of home runs, a single, and a sacrifice fly to drive in five runs. And Shohei Otani had three singles and two stolen bases as the Brewers defeated the Angels 7-5. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> that is terrific. It reminds me of, you know, an observation about baseball teams. You can't win with two superstars and the rest are bad. You have to you have at least depth. an average team. Unlike basketball. <laughs> unlike yeah, basketball. Unlike basketball. You have to have at least an average team on there to have make it work. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think we're seeing that, that kind of effective depth already with some of the teams that have been, I mean, yeah, you know, the Yankees, I'm sure you guys have been been decimated by injuries, but 
you know, I, it, it's it's crazy that team does not have that, that, that like somebody like Willie Calhoun is batting lead, like cleanup. I, I don't know how Willie Calhoun's playing in the major leagues, let alone bat, batting, batting cleanup for the Yankees. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, talk about it. I mean, you can argue that's basically not lo- not long range planning. They, they traded away all their prospects. They have an empty, depleted farm system. And they also didn't sign well in the offseason. That would be my my description. Yeah, no, I think they're 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 certainly getting bit right now by the you know not having good depth certainly in the, on on the kind of in fielding you know, hitting want, side I, of things. I do want to follow up that you know you have these giants playing as the leaders on the team. I mean Stanton and Judge, and talk about injury probability elevated. Those are two leading candidates, uh, Stanton in particular, and Judge now is out also. I mean these guys are huge. And we, we've, we've talked about this forever on our show. Someone's got to do a study that, that, that maybe says, shows something that these football player playing baseball might have an elevated uh, probability of, of injury. Not sure. Well, is that, uh, but is that like, are you saying like prior, like the, what, 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 is it the playing of football prior to playing baseball? Or are you saying that no, the, no, type, no. Of body, the mm-hmm. type of body, the type of body, the type of players have that have the body yeah. types where they could conceivably yes. also play football don't age. I mean, certainly I think people have sort of studied kind of how yeah. different bodies age. Yeah. I just, my quick question also is the thing I noticed relates to the Yankees and what we've been talking about is I look at the entire AL East at 500 and above, but I also look at the start that the Rays are off at. And I start to think to myself, I, it's way too early for this. But Adi, when do you write off the division if you're the Yankees? And just a little math. I always love to do this at this point in the season. The Rays play 500 ball for the rest of the season. Just go 67 and 66. They get to 90 wins. For the Yankees to get there, right, they have to go 75 and 57 the rest of the season, which is not impossible. It's about 575-80 ball, which, of course, is about a 93-94 win pace, which they can absolutely do, except they've gone 15 and 15. Not write it off, but, Adi, when do you? When are you going to say the Yankees have at best, I'll even use an arbitrary number, a 20% probability to win the division? Are we there yet? They have four I think we are there. Pass. We are. I think we are there only because of the decimation of their lineup and the lack of prospects for rebuilding it. I mean – the injury is something that we add in as a probability at the beginning of the season into our sims. But now that those injuries have been realized, we have to have to take them account and actually recognize that this is not going to look like a great season for the Yankees. That's all I can say. Probability, 20%. Sure. People can come back. There's lots of randomness. They can sign people. I wouldn't write them off as not winning the division. I also think their chance of making the playoffs is significantly higher because of the wild, wild card spots. But winning the division... 20% seems right to me. So real quickly, the fan graphs have them right now at 72 and 60 for the rest of the season. And so they're forecasting, this is fan graphs forecasting an 87 win season right now, but I Honestly, don't know. It might always, do not. Yeah. I don't even know if that makes them second in the division, according to fan graphs. It can't. Toronto and Tampa Bay have to be predicted higher than that. Well, they've got, I mean, obviously that division is playing very well, but it's, I don't, I, I like the question of to what extent are the injuries baked into those things? How do they have them baked into the, into the forecast going forward? All right, guys, what else around major league baseball? Well, I, I, one, one kind of thing I want to point out that's interesting. Well, I think a couple of weeks ago we had with a guest, we were talking about, you know, who like, like what we observed with Albert Pujols having this kind of late career sort of like revival back with his uh, old team, you know, are there any prospects for that happening? And I, off the top of our head, I don't think we, we struggled to come up with one, but I'd like to point one out right now, which is Andrew McCutcheon. 
he's having a, a, he's back with the Pittsburgh Pirates, his you know team of yore, and he's having a really good season. And you know, I mean, he he's is he hasn't really slowed down speed wise or anything like that. His OPS is like point eight thirty. He's hit like you know twenty three hits and twenty three games played. I mean, he's he's doing really well. So I mean, we might be seeing something like what we saw with Albert Pujols last season with Andrew McCutcheon this season. We'll remind you that that was not one of the candidates we were looking at, though, among the among the top, you know, returners. Although, and so I would probably re- predict he will regress substantially before the end of the year is over. But I'm delighted for Pittsburgh Pirates fans who generally have not much to cheer about. <laughs> exactly. Go Pirates always, right? We have that- just quickly about Andrew is he's he's doing good. But as you put in the rundown, Shane, I think it was you. He has an 830 OPS. So he's regressed. to a, He's not the old Andrew McCutcheon but he's better than he was. No, I mean, the old, I mean, the original Andrew McCutcheon like looked like he was going to go to the Hall of Fame. So no, he's not at that level yet, but he's certainly better than he has been. All right, guys, I promise we will get into a time of year when we can spend more indulgent periods of time on Major League Baseball. For this week, that has been two hours of sports analytics. That's been Wharton Moneyball. Thank you guys for listening. For the whole crew here, Shane, Adi, Eric, this is Cade. For Maddie Dats, the boss band for Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man appreciate y'all listening come back and join us next time between now and then enjoy your sports